Good morning again. Good morning again. There we go, yeah. So my name's Kaylee Meza. I'm from California, born and raised along with my wife. Uh, my wife and I, uh, who would have loved to be here, uh, but we went to Navy Pier yesterday for the first time uh, with some family of ours who flew in, and we got home very late. And so she decided she was going to stay home. So, but she hopes to be with us next time. She uh, sends her greetings. Well, she uh, and I have been married for nine years. We have four children together. So I'm currently a student at Westminster Seminary, California. I've been there for three years. And I'm just finishing up uh, the end of that. So I'll be at Orland Park for one more month till, through August, and then I'll fly home finish up one more year there, and then we'll see where the Lord leads us. So but I really appreciate you all for, for welcoming me here this morning. It's really good to be with you. This morning, we are going to be in Esther chapter 2. So if you have your Bible with you, I'd invite you to turn there. And we're going to start in verse 21. This is God's word. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to, the queen, to queen Esther, and Esther told it to the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur, that is, they cast lots, before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to, the king, said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of other people, and they do not keep the king's law, so that it, does not, uh, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed." And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Ag Agite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The money is given to you, the people also, 
to do with them as seems best to you. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the thirteenth day of the first month, and an edict according to all that Haman commanded was written to the king's satraps and the governors of all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instructions to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by the proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. This is God's word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning that you have called us here to worship you. We thank you, Lord, that you have given us your word and your gospel. We pray now that as your word goes out and as your word is preached, that you would bless it, Lord, that you would uh, make it prosper to do all that your will accords it to do. We pray, Lord, that if there's anything that is not edifying, anything that does not come from your word, that it would fall to the ground, but that anything that gives life, anything that is true, good, and beautiful would stand and encourage and edify and strengthen all of us, your people. We thank you, Lord, for your grace, and we pray now as your word is preached. In your son's name, amen. So there's an old Catholic story of St. Teresa of Avila, the Carmelite nun. And the story goes like this. Teresa, who had dedicated herself to convent life, was traveling with her companions to the Spanish cities of Burgos and Granada. I don't know where that is, but that's what the story says. And so she's traveling with them to go and set up new convents throughout the region. And the journey had been particularly difficult up till then as they traveled to those cities. And just as they were coming up to Burgas, just as they were a few miles outside of this first city, the company was impeded by one of the rivers which had flooded and covered the path across. Teresa rallied the group to cross on foot, but as they did, Teresa lost her footing and she was washed out by the river and her group thought that she had perished and drowned. But Teresa had actually just been washed down shore and she eventually landed on a shore down river. Teresa was quite obviously discouraged that she had had a very rough go of things, encountering difficulty after difficulty already on her trip to do the Lord's work. And the Catholic legend goes on to say that in her frustration, she exclaimed and cried out, why, my Lord, do you put so many obstacles before us? Why did you let this happen to me? And it said, according to the story, that Jesus appeared before her at that time, and he said, this is how I treat all my friends. To which Teresa then replied, If this is how you treat your friends, it's no wonder you have so few. 
Now, clearly this story can be classified as a bit of hagiography, right? A fictitious and venerated tale of one of the old saints of the Catholic Church. And yet, I think that we can all agree, whether Teresa actually spoke her complaint or not, whether Teresa actually encountered Jesus face to face or not, there is an element of truth in her final words. As I'm sure many of our lives can attest, there is something that seems so incredibly backwards at times to following God. As trite as the old adage might sound, we can't help but at one time or another ask, why do bad things happen to good people? And perhaps the more frustrating question, why do good things happen to bad people? The world too often seems plumb full of injustice, so unbelievably full of corruption, so unbelievably full of the wicked who prosper, where the good are just simply left out in the cold. And particularly for us as Christians, we can sometimes feel this sort of illogical tension a bit more because of what we believe, right? We believe in a God who is sovereign. We believe in a God who says that he works all things for the good of those who love him, who controls all things, and yet being on his team doesn't really seem to have all that many benefits at times. We're not trying to be superficial. We know that God doesn't work for us. We're not trying to be shallow. We know that God's not a genie in our bottle who's going to just rain blessing whenever we wish. But like Teresa's comments are getting at, the course of life sometimes does make you scratch your head and wonder, do you really have a friend up there? I know that I'm not perfect. I know that I'm saved by grace alone, but does trying to live faithfully here and now really count for nothing here and now? Accepting trial isn't all that hard when it's your own fault, when you've brought it upon your own head. But what about when you do the right thing? What about when you do the right thing and the right thing and the right thing and things still go south on you? Life does not reward you. And then all you're left with in your mess and in your disappointment are the questions. Questions that we've all asked. What is the deal? When will I catch a break? Is this really how it's supposed to work? Isn't life supposed to be better when you follow God? These are the questions of the silent arrangement all of us feel that we have with God. We don't expect absolute prosperity. We know that a little suffering is, is good. It's good for the soul. It builds character. But is a little help too much to ask for sometimes? And of course, when we look at those around us in those times of trouble, in those times where we feel that we've been left holding the bag, there's all those other related questions. Why is he blessed instead of me? You've got to be kidding me. Why do things always seem to go well for her? We know that life is full of irony, but there are many moments where it just feels like a bad joke. Why do the wicked prosper, and why do the good guys always seem to finish last? This is the uncomfortable tension many of us have experienced at one time or another. 
And as we see in our story, we see this same tension within this story of Haman and Mordecai. As we just read, this is one of those stories that bears witness to the fact that life for God's people is often frustratingly unfair. And so that's how we're going to spend our time this morning. We're going to look at our two characters, Mordecai and Haman. And as we'll see in a moment, the question that arises from this story is the same question that arises so often for many of us. What good can come of this? What good can come of this? That is our question this morning. So let's look at our story. We're going to start with old Morty. So who is Mordecai? The portrait of this Jewish man that we're given here is really quite positive. And we can see this in how Mordecai responds to the events around him. Mordecai is really an upright kind of guy. He's the kind of guy you'd want to be buddies with or have over for dinner. We're told earlier in chapter 2 that Mordecai is the older cousin, an adopted father of the new queen Esther, who had been orphaned when she was very young. And we're told in verse 7 of chapter 2 that Mordecai took her in as his own daughter. And the rest of chapter 2 goes on to explain the soap opera, right, in which Esther is abducted and thrown into this beauty contest, this kingdom's quest for a new queen. And everyone is surprised when everything turns out all right and Esther wins. And so when everything is all said and done and the crown has been placed on Esther's head, the story picks back up in verse 21, which we just read. With Mordecai sitting at the king's gate, now, this is an expression that does not necessarily reveal a particular, a particular location so much as it shows the office that Mordecai sits in. Okay? Mordecai is a civil servant. He holds some sort of political office within the Persian Empire as one who is said to sit at the king's gate. And it's here that Mordecai catches wind of this plan to assassinate the king. And Mordecai, being the good guy that he is, despite being a Jew, despite living outside of the promised land and now in a foreign nation, he remains loyal to his foreign king. He then goes on to tell his adopted daughter, Queen Esther. And Esther goes on to tell the king in the name of Mordecai, is what it says. And this means that Esther gives Mordecai all the credit for the report. The text makes that perfectly clear. The report is then investigated and when found to be true, and the two conspirators are executed and hung on the gallows, Mordecai saved the kingdom. Mordecai saved the king. He saved the day. And for this good deed, what does he get? In verse 23, he gets his name recorded in the book of Chronicles. The day Morty saved the day. Right? A grand gesture. A golden star. But then what happens next? The, li- excuse me, the irony of life kicks in. The bad joke. If we ignore the chapter heading of chapter 3 for a moment, the immediate verse following reads, After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. Mordecai's righteous deed is given a head nod. 
while Haman gets promoted to the right hand of the king for no given reason. But the frustration continues. In verse 2, we're told that the king gave the command that Haman ought to be treated with great respect and that the king's servants ought to bow down and pay homage to Haman. And this is a problem for a faithful Jew. However, not because of what we might expect. Mordecai here is choosing not to bow down to Haman, not because the king was trying to deify him, not because Haman was making himself to be some sort of God, not even because it would have been improper for a Jew to bow down to a man, right? Prostrating oneself before someone in authority was actually a quite common practice that we see throughout the Old Testament. So what's the rub? Well, we see it in Haman's description. Haman the Agite. Haman the Agite. Haman, we're told, is a descendant of Israel's arch enemy, the Agites, also known as the Amalekites. Okay, so, so who are these people? I'll try to keep us out of, out of the weeds on this, but this is important. These folks are the descendants of Isaac's other seed, Jacob's brother Esau. These are the same people who in Exodus 17 attacked Israel as they were coming out of Egypt into the promised land when the nation was faint and weary. The Amalekites preyed on the group and on the weak and on those who trailed behind, taking off their children and their elderly. And after these things, God had Moses record in Exodus that he would utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And so here we see Israel's covenant enemy. Except it gets a little more personal for Mordecai. These are the same people whom King Saul had failed to destroy in 1 Samuel 15. The prophet Samuel came to him and told him, King Saul, to take up arms and to destroy the Amalekites and their king, King Agag. Agag. Agite. But Saul had failed by keeping King Agag alive, which consequently had cost him his throne. And this note about Saul is particularly relevant as Mordecai had been introduced in chapter 2 as a Jew, a son of Shammai, son of Kish, a Benjamite. Well, who else was a son of Kish? Who else was a Benjamite? King Saul. And so this rivalry and this animosity between these two groups are really being highlighted for us here in the text. Those may seem strange to us as those who are in the new covenant, who belong here and are gathered as a part of the church in which there is neither Jew nor Greek. We live in the reality that Christ has, in fact, broke down the dividing wall. Here in this story, under the old covenant, under the Mosaic covenant, Mordecai, by not bowing to Haman, is him trying to keep covenantal faithfulness to his God. Mordecai could not bow down to Haman, his ancient enemy, without sacrificing his nation's honor and his loyalty to his God's covenant to destroy the Amalekites. Okay, so I know we've gotten in the weeds a little bit, but just simply put, Mordecai here is trying to be a faithful Jew. He's trying to be a good and faithful man. But for this, for this good act, for this good act of faithfulness, how does life reward him? 
Well, as the story goes, this defiance is reported to Haman, and Haman is filled with rage. And instead of being satisfied to kill Mordecai alone, he decides to kill all the Jews, Mordecai's people throughout the kingdom. Haman seeks out the king, cunningly convinces him that it does not profit him to keep these people, these strange and curious people in his kingdom, but that it would, in fact, profit the king to do away with them, as Haman would gladly pay the king for the loss of taxes he would accrue by disposing of them. And just like that, the king slips off his ring. He gives the power to Haman to see it done. Letters are written and sent out to all the empire, to all the king's provinces, with instructions to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day. These people have already been taken from their homeland. These people are already being ruled by foreign nations. But rock bottom has a basement. And the irony of this day in which the Jews were to be killed is that this day fell on the day before Passover, right? With a roll of a die, with a casting of lots, leaving things up to chance. When would this happen? Well, it would happen the day before God's great day of redemption was remembered. And so the question inevitably comes to us, was God still going to be true to his promise and to God's people? Was God still going to be true to his promise even now as God's people had been handed over to exile? Did God still care? And as we read, these letters go out delivering bitter grapes to the people while Haman and the king sit down and get drunk with wine. How magnificently unfair. How brilliantly unjust all of this is. Mordecai had tried to do the right thing, followed by the right thing, followed by the right thing, and yet he not only brought death upon his own head, but he brought death to a whole nation. And we read ahead in verse 1 of chapter 4, it says, When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. Now, while some of us may be tempted to read ahead in our minds and itch to resolve that tension by jumping to the end of the story, right? To jump to the happy ending. To jump where good conquers evil in the end and where everyone lives happily ever after. I think we would really be doing the story of Scripture a disservice here. We'd really be doing ourselves a disservice. Because how does your life look right now? Does it seem like good has really conquered evil yet? Are all those loose ends in your life perfectly tied? Has that terrible and mysterious tragedy that happened to you, has that mystery really been solved yet? Does life really seem all that fair to you? As many of us know all too well, life is messy, life is unfair, full of injustice, 
full of evil. Many of us keep trying to do the right thing, striving to be faithful to our Lord, and yet so often it feels that our good efforts are rewarded with sour grapes while others drink wine before us. And despite our cries for help, God seems all too distant, all too often, all too silent. Is this really how God treats his friends? Sometimes in the, in the Bible, as we read a good Bible story, before we jump ahead to the conclusion and hurry to see that tension resolved, we need to go through the motions of digesting the experiences, wrestling with the many injustices within the story as well as within our own lives in order to be reminded that your experience is very much the experience of God's people. Your experience is very much the experience of God's people within Scripture. And like Teresa of Avila, like Mordecai, despite doing the right thing, we face difficulty after difficulty, setback after setback, and things sometimes only seem to get worse. Don't ignore that. Don't jump over that. Because that is where we find all the questions really worth, worth asking. It is in those moments we find all the questions really worth asking. And the question of this story is really the question we all ask time and time again. What good could possibly come of this? What good could possibly come of this? Well, the battle that we see here between Mordecai and Haman, and the battle that we see between Israel and the Malachites, and the battle that we see between Jacob and Esau, these battles are really just a part of a larger war, an old and ancient war where there is an ancient enemy constantly looking to do battle against God's people and to stomp them out. The story here in Esther is really the same story we see in Exodus. As God's people were put to death in Egypt, it's really the same story we see as they moved out of Egypt into the Promised Land but were put to death by the Amalekites. This is really the same story we see in the Gospels as Satan sought to put an end to God's only way of redemption, Jesus Christ. This is really just the same old story where God's people are faced with injustice and unfairness and ruin and death time and time and time again and where it seems like no good could come of any of it. Where the question is asked time and time and time again, just like you and I, what good could possibly come from any of this? Well, the good news is that God does not just simply work for the good of his people in spite of evil. But even better, God works for the good of his people through evil, through the worst kind of evil. The story of Esther is really the story of the great reversal, where the Jews are brought low, sentenced to die, and yet, as we read on, it is through the very plan of Haman that Haman comes to meet his end and Mordecai comes to take his place. The story of Esther is really the story where winners 
become losers and losers like you and I become winners. And all this takes place not in spite of evil, not in spite of, just, of injustice, but through it. And we see that this seems to be how God likes to work. Just as Haman sought to destroy Mordecai and the Jews, but was destroyed by his own plan, so did Satan bring destruction upon himself at the death of Christ. The gospel is the most backward story ever told, where Satan actually won. The long and ancient enemy actually won, actually got what he wanted, actually was able to put God himself, Jesus the God-man, to death, stomp out the holy seed, see him crucified and killed on a cross, Every bit of evil, every bit of injustice came upon Christ at that very moment. And yet, not in spite of that injustice, not in spite of that evil, but through it, Christ brought new life from it. Through evil, he brought good. Through injustice, he brought justice. This is how your God works. It's not in spite of of the greatest injustice ever committed, not in spite of the greatest evil, but through it that Christ brought salvation to you, his people. Just as Mordecai, who despite being faithful, was brought low, and through this one man brought death to all those who were united to him, so was Christ brought low taking it upon himself every bit of injustice in order that those who have been united to him would experience the same fate. Yes, death. As Christ was crucified, so we too, who have been buried with him in baptism, have experienced the same death. As Paul writes in Romans 6, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if you have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. This is the story of Esther. This is the story of the gospel. What good could come of an unjust death of Mordecai and the unjust death of a nation? What good could come out of the death of Jesus Christ on an ugly cross? The resurrection of new life. Let this be an encouragement to you, brothers and sisters. Let this be an encouragement to you as you pick up your cross and follow after him. Let this be an encouragement to you as you encounter evil and injustice in this world. As you pilgrim on in this foreign land that is not your home, as your faithfulness is paid with bitter grapes, let this be an encouragement to you. As you continue, continue to wrestle, not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities and cosmic powers 
in this present darkness, let this be an encouragement to you, knowing that even when the greatest evil was committed, God was working for your good, and he is still working for your good. Not in spite of the evil that happens to you, not in spite of the injustice that you will encounter, but through it. God is still working for your good. So when life goes south on you, and some of you may be there in that place right now, where life has in fact gone south on you, and you find yourself frustrated and bewildered and asking that question, what good could come of this? Look to your Savior, Jesus Christ, and know that there is nothing in this life, no bit of injustice, no bit of unfairness, no bit of evil, and not even death, that God cannot turn into something good and something true and something beautiful. He did that at the cross, and for all those who are united with him in baptism, you may be assured that he is doing the same for you as well. Amen? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, that you do not work in the ways that we expect. Lord, when all else seems lost, when life seems completely black, you are still working. You are the God of the great reversal who brings forth life from death. And we thank you that you have done that for us in the magnificent work of Jesus Christ. We pray now, Lord, as we close our service, that you would bless your people as they go out, that you would strengthen them and encourage them in your grace and in your undying love. In your son's name, amen.